0: Welcome to Boss Files, I'm Poppy Harlow. Today, I'm talking to leaders who are working to help the most vulnerable people during this coronavirus pandemic, both here in the United States and around the world. We wanted to do this episode because this is something I think about a lot and care deeply about. For those of us who are more fortunate, what can we all do to help those who will be even more adversely impacted by this, both in terms of disparity in care and the economic fallout that is just going to increase income inequality in this country. A little bit later in the show, I'll speak with Wes Moore, the CEO of Robin Hood Foundation. Their sole mission is lifting people out of poverty right here in New York City. Wes also has quite a personal story. So this strikes close to home for him.
1: I saw with my own family about how these singular shocks can knock a family down to the point that it then takes this remarkable sense of influence and, frankly, a lot of luck to be able to help people navigate their way out of this.
0: I'll also talk to Lauren Bush-Lauren, the founder and CEO of Feed Projects, which sells their feed bags and other items to directly fund the UN World Food Program. She talks about how she's working with Feed's partners around the world and also how she's trying to support her own employees.
2: If there's any takeaway so far, it's that we're truly all in this together. And to me, I think it just puts movements like ours, like the hunger movement, like the environmental movement, certainly, just in a new context.
0: But let's begin this episode with supermodel-turned-activist Christy Turlington Burns, the founder of Every Mother Counts. It's an incredible organization that fights to improve care for mothers giving birth around the world, mothers who right now are facing even greater threats to their health. A quick note before we begin, as you can imagine, none of these conversations are happening in person right now, while we're all pretty much at home we're talking over the phone and online. So occasionally you'll hear a dog bark in the background or one of my kids could burst in at any moment. I hope you'll understand and bear with us as we work through all of this and keep bringing you the show. So let's begin with my conversation with Christy Turlington Burns. Okay, technology troubleshoot All done. We're good. Christy, thank you so much for talking to me about this, especially right now.
3: Thank you, Poppy, for having me.
0: Just to give people a sense of the situation for women giving birth in America before the coronavirus pandemic, the number of women who die giving birth in America each year has nearly doubled in the last two decades. And the U.S. has higher rates of maternal death than 45 other countries, and I couldn't believe it when I learned this, is the only developed country with a consistently rising maternal mortality rate. So that is where we were before COVID-19. Where are we today? What has Every Mother Count learned about what this pandemic means for pregnant women and, and women delivering?
3: What we've been seeing here and um, so far is that there's a, really a lack of of research and information, adequate information for um, childbearing people. Um, I think when people are in a state of confusion and fear in an already uh, a period of time with which there is that kind of emotion attached, there's a lot of unknown, a lot of uncertainty. Um, it is more important than ever for um, women and families to have a contact with their provider and to be having a really close dialogue with them as they prepare um, for giving birth during this time. As I mentioned before, the research is just not there. Uh, there are a number of studies in the last week that have been coming to my attention, um, which we are helping to spread the word so that more women can um, participate in those studies. Um, but there really is so little that we know about pregnant women, and uh, their susceptibility to this. I think what makes them most um, vulnerable is the fact that most women in America deliver in a hospital setting. And by virtue of being in a hospital at this time, um, it's not the safest place to be.
0: And and there there are even some labor and delivery wards being converted into coronavirus units, right? And I I wonder, are you seeing data that more women are opting to deliver it at home as a result? And is that really the safest
3: choice? I think there are a lot of women who are exploring that option Right now, but it's not advisable for a woman who hasn't been going down that path already to be exploring that option. If it's late in the pregnancy or in the middle of the pregnancy, I think if you are finding out that you're pregnant today or you're in those early weeks, um, it's a great option to explore in any time period, if you're a low risk pregnancy, you, you want to make sure that the choices that you make, that you have the support system to make sure that that's going to be the best fit for you, but to be making that decision now late in your pregnancy, because you're fearful of the hospital is not the ideal, um, scenario. And a lot of home birth midwives, um, are actually, um, Fully booked or overbooked, and not able to handle the demand that this situation has caused. What does this mean?
0: This pandemic and the pressure on the hospital systems as a result, and the lack of, uh, you know, PPE or protective gear for many nurses and doctors. Can you talk about what this means, Christy, especially for the most vulnerable population? Because you know we've seen a real disparity. In terms of availability of care for poor Americans. And I I would think that that would extend to those who are more vulnerable uh, and in more dire economic situations as they're giving birth.
3: Yeah, all very true. Um, I mean, just to put it into perspective, childbirth accounts for nearly one out of four hospital stays in this country. So you really can't address the coronavirus crisis without taking into account pregnant and childbearing people. Um, In some areas, as I'm sure you've seen in the media, um, women in labor can only have one person with them in the hospital and visitors are limited. Um, New York state recently issued an order protecting the right of people to have at least one support person with them in the hospital during labor and childbirth. But that's been even controversial among, um, health workers. You know, it's, it's tricky. As you mentioned, the most vulnerable women who are coming in and don't have any support system, no partner, they're already very much on their own. Uh, going into this experience. And so to not be able to have a um, a support person by their side, a doula, for example, um, someone that they've built a relationship and trust with, it just puts them in a a place of more vulnerability than they already were. There are a lot of people taking um, the line of preparing people with a technology plan so that if they are in a hospital or a city that is not allowing a partner to be in the room, then they should be working today on kind of building up to prepare for that and having some type of technical device to be able to allow voice support or some kind of meditation or some kind of coaching support throughout labor and delivery. Um, But not everybody has access to those types of support systems or technologies. So um, there will be uh, women who are going to do this on their own um, with, you know, very stressed out, overworked uh, providers. And um, that doesn't set anyone up for success ultimately.
0: You were very vocal uh, in New York over the last few weeks about this and and applauded Governor Cuomo for the executive order to mandate that every person giving birth could have one one person by their side as they were doing that in the hospital. Having given birth, you know, myself twice for you, having gone through this, I I can't imagine not having someone there uh, alongside of me. But you're saying that's that's a situation for some mothers still in other in other states.
3: Yes, I think every state is handling this slightly differently. And it could just be the hospitals themselves that have created the policies. And that, that's one of the things that I think would be helpful is just to have consistent policies across the country, right? Um, so that uh, when people are hearing about um, a governor in one state who's saying this is not acceptable, um, to know that that, that same um, bar or standard will be held um, at their local level as well.
0: You uh, at Every Mother Counts have been profiling the courageous sort of frontline healthcare workers uh, on Instagram. And every day you have a new post. I was really struck. I think it was just yesterday or the day before these two sisters from Michigan, where there's an outbreak, um, you know, serving a pregnant woman, delivering her another doctor, talking about uh, delivering a baby from a, a, a presumptive COVID-19 positive mother these are these are our heroes right now
3: they really are I mean I I, I can't see enough or hear enough of these stories um, the uh, heroism you know many of them are our um, mother's parents themselves um, some of our uh, nurses in our network have been covering for their colleagues who are pregnant right now and um, and in themselves um, very fearful of contracting this, um, virus and bringing it home. A friend of mine who's an OB, uh, in New York, I think she's featured today on our Instagram, Heidi flag. She's in a practice of all female, um, OB kinds And many of them are mothers of very small children. And right now we've been, we've been hearing, and this is part of the research gap, um, that's there. Uh, there have been some cases where, um, moms have been de- delivering, uh, not testing positive and then testing positive afterwards. Um, So people are, are, are very nervous. It's not the best situation for um, health workers to be providing care, you know, without the support system, without the proper gear. One of the uh, data points that, that you and I talk about often
0: is especially for African-American women in America and especially in New York, in terms of how many more die during childbirth, than you know their their white or Hispanic uh, peers, and I believe it is three times as many across the country now. Looking at the latest data that came out at the end of January, and something like t- twelve times the number in in New York.
3: That's correct. Yeah, it's three to four times. Um uh, as you said, uh, uh, women of color. So African-American women, as well as native women, um, in the United States nationally. And then in New York, um, you know, we have the highest, I would say of any other, um, uh, sort of metro area. Um, and it's unacceptable. And there's been a lot of, a lot more attention more recently, um, put towards that issue in New York. So to think about um, how those women are going to be impacted at this time um, is certainly top of minds for us every day. But right now, especially, um, you know, we need to continue to focus our attention on vulnerable members of our communities, um, pregnant women, postpartum people and newborns.
0: Given the fact that this is an unprecedented situation that there's no roadmap for, right? Uh, you know, one way I heard it described is we're sort of flying the plane as we're building it as a nation. What is Every Mother Counts doing? I know that you've assembled home prenatal kits. I know, I believe you have a resource hub where people can go for more information and help.
3: That's right. About a week ago, we compiled um, a resource guide for pregnant women. Um, and we are keeping it updated, working with a lot of our uh, community partners, um, our public health partners, other foundations to make sure that the data, the most um, up-to-date data is is included. So, you know, that's a good resource for people. Um, we are also talking to our grantee partners around the world because uh, we have partners in six countries including the US. And so talking to them about their needs on the ground, um, which are changing day to day, uh, a lot of the countries where we have partners outside of the United States are just kind of coming into this. They're at their sort of very early stages. Um, I just came back from India a couple of weeks ago. Um, India obviously is in, in full lockdown. Um, it's a very densely populated Uh, country. And so the impact of this on, 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 (laughs) on their people is going to be um, it's going to be big. Um, And then Haiti also, I mean, very vulnerable places already um, with, uh, you know, not very consistent services. Um, But right now more than ever, um, they are trying to prepare um, for the unknown um, if we talk about the lack of equipment in this country, you can only imagine um, what that will be like in Bangladesh, in Guatemala, um, in Tanzania. So we're trying to you know, share what we're learning here in real time with them um, in multiple languages to get them um, as best prepared as they can be. I, I,
0: let me just end by reading everyone one of these posts from you guys elevating the, the stories of, of what you guys are calling maternal health heroes on the front lines of COVID-19. This comes from Dr. Amanda Williams, Susan ob at Kaiser Permanente in Oakland, uh, California. I did a crash C-section drill today donning my N95 mask this morning, and I'm currently managing labor with my first patient under investigation with a COVID test pending. It's a lot, but we're up to the challenge. So Thank you for elevating their stories uh, and and for talking to us. And and I guess just let's end on letting people know where they can go if, if they if they want to help.
3: Uh, sure. Please come to everymothercounts.org for um, that access to the, the resources guides, um, our Instagram to, to check out those stories. We're going to be sharing them as long as they keep coming in, which I think will be for some time. Amanda is just one of those um, professionals who is, there, um, you know, going beyond, um, beyond the, the sort of usual kind of health care always so committed to women, so committed to vulnerable populations, um, and keeping up, uh, her health and strength is, is, is really, really important. So just giving, um, some of these people, the, the attention and the uh, praise that they deserve right now will help them go the distance for, um, for vulnerable people and for all people.
0: And people can donate to everymothercounts.org online, too, if they want to help. And I keep talking about food banks as well. For those of us who have more, there are so many that don't right now at all. So thank you, Christy, for the work you're doing.
3: Thank you so much, Poppy.
0: After the break, we'll hear from Wes Moore about how his foundation is helping New York City's most vulnerable populations. Now we turn to Wes Moore, the CEO of Robin Hood Foundation. Wes, thanks for being here.
1: It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for for this conversation.
0: Of course, I I think you know maybe a week or two really into this coronavirus crisis, I started thinking a lot more about the economic impact for the most vulnerable, and you obviously popped right into my head, leading Robin Hood. So let's just begin there for people who don't know Robin Hood and what you do. The goal is lift New Yorkers out of poverty, right? And this means children. This means their parents, anyone who is most vulnerable. Where are we right now in this crisis for them?
1: You know, I, I think we're watching how the vulnerabilities that so many people in the city of New York and, and throughout the country are feeling, they're just being completely exacerbated right now. I mean, even, even prior to COVID-19 and prior to everything that we have seen, uh, nearly half of all New Yorkers could not sustain a $400 shock, uh, could not sustain a $400 unexpected bill uh, that would not knock them right back down into poverty. And that's what we're seeing right now. This is the shock. And and it's something where it's a lot more than four hundred dollars, and it's something for the families, for the children, for the communities that we support. Uh, this is something they are now responsible for. But we're watching how they are the directed impacted communities that we uh, that we are fighting and advocating for. So so what we're seeing right here uh, really is an illustration of the massive schisms that we have in our society about who are those that are actually prepared to take on these type of shocks? Who are those that have the resiliency to take on those kind of shocks and, and which communities and, and individuals repeatedly are not. And so we're watching this in real time right now.
0: And for, for I believe just the third time in the more than three decade history of Robinhood, you, you guys are activating and using your relief fund to help these folks. Right? Can you, can you share with us some anecdotes of what Those individuals, their families are going through right now, because on top of not taking home a paycheck for so many of them at all, uh, their their children are home. Right. And they are not in school and they're not receiving the support of school. They're having to deal with education, many without access to a laptop or or Internet. What are what are they going through and how can the relief fund help?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think one thing we're seeing and and you're right in in the 32 year history of Robin Hood, this is only the third time that we have activated uh, uh, our, our relief fund. The, the first was right after 9-11. Uh, and the second time was after Superstorm, Stan- Superstorm Sandy. And, and you're right, as we're watching, there's this cascading uh, of impact and effects that, uh, that is really hitting our community. Because when you're talking about people who are living in poverty, uh, oftentimes, is you're talking about people who have jobs. It's the working poor. It's the hourly worker. It's the person who doesn't have benefits. It's the person who, if you restrict not only, not, not even just their job, but just the amount of hours that they can compete in the job, uh, you're talking about people who are working in some cases, multiple jobs and are still living below the poverty line. So if you think about just within the first week of, uh, of Of the impact hitting, uh, you know we were able to get grants out the door focused on you know general operating expenses for our community partners, both new and existing community partners, and also thinking about things like cash assistance, emergency food and and, and we really came to these as our landing spots because that's the feedback we were getting from our community partners where you know we had community partners, who we're watching this moment right now is the difference between them existing and them not existing. And so even just in the past two weeks, uh, you know, Robinhood has allocated more than 80 grants worth worth uh, close to five million dollars to support nonprofits operating in New York City. We've raised over 20 million for the COVID-19 Relief Fund uh, and we will continue distributing rapid grants to nonprofits and to keep them operating and serving the communities that really do need the most.
0: It's just such a stark reminder, even for those who are, I guess, fortunate enough to still have work uh, and be considered essential, um, and, and and go to work. For many of them, that that's not a that's not a car service to work. That's not an Uber to work. That's a packed subway car. The woman uh, who who you know I get oatmeal from every morning in her, you know. It, it, Leah modest, her name, she's amazing. And she's so grateful to have a job. And uh, she told me this morning, two and a half hours this morning to get to work left at 4am subway is so coming so much less now because so many fewer people are using it in New York pack subway cars. She said, I cover myself, but you know, people are just standing up against me. It's, it's packed. Right. And so it just is a reminder of the disparity even for those who are still going and trying to get that paycheck.
1: It's, it's exactly right. I mean, we we, we have situations here and, and we understand why, but, you know, but the, the, the government, uh, you know, both within the state of New York, but also other states have moved rapidly to be able to to not just uh, encourage, but in many ways enforce this idea of social distancing, uh, knowing that that is going to be the most effective way of being able to control the spread of the virus. Uh, but that also includes things like public transportation. You know, for, those, for anybody who has spent any time in public transportation, uh, as, as, as we do every day, especially up in New York. I mean, that's how we get around. And there is no social distancing. Uh, when no, and what about,
0: a, what about NYCHA? What about public housing? You've got a lot of people living really closely together. That's too. exactly
1: right. That's exactly right. And so, and so you're watching where part of the challenge that we have uh, you know, in New York and also other cities like, like Baltimore, the, the problem is density. It's just people who are just on top of each other, which in some ways creates this, 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 this beautiful level of community in good times. And in times like now where we are trying to and have to reinforce this idea of social distancing, it also makes it incredibly complicated to be able to, to, to reinforce that. And so, you know, so we have, you know, I, I think about this in terms of our work, in terms of how we're thinking about the role of the policy. Does play in so much of our work, where where you know there's a, a good and a considerable amount of that we can do on the philanthropic side. You know we've been able to allocate significant dollars to many of our community partners, uh, but but also I think some of the work that we are doing and some of the work that I, that I'm also most proud of is the fact that we are able to coordinate and work with our government officials because the decisions that they that are being made on the governmental side are going to have just as much impact on on the resiliency. Of our community on our ability to be able to 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 attack this this virus and control its spread, to be able to flatten the curve as much as anything that we are doing in the in the world of philanthropy.
0: Yeah, I mean these benefits. It's it's great to see what what has been passed and what may be coming to help. But if you have a hard time figuring out how to apply for them or actually getting them, then it, it you know it doesn't have the impact on you. Let's just step back for a minute, Wes. And if you could tell, I've had the pleasure of knowing you for, I don't know, maybe a decade or so and read your book and, you know, had you on the podcast before and in happier times, but can you just tell people a little bit about you and and your background? And I just keep thinking about your father and what disparity and care meant for him and your family, if you want to share that.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, and I mean, part of the reason that this is my life's work is because it's personal. I've had the uh, the the luxury of being able to look at our economy from from a multitude of different sectors. Whether it's from you know the private sector, from the nonprofit, from you know from as being the the, the founder of a startup through through the military and working in government. So I I've, I've seen every sector of this economy, uh, and I've also had a chance to see the fact that that every sector of this economy uh, also continues to leave people out of it. Uh, and I saw and I see that from my own experiences where, you know, at the, you know, I, I only have two memories of my father. Um, and the second memory that I have of him was when I was about four years old and I watched him die in front of me. Uh, and, and, I, and I saw how how it just rocked our family where 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 my mother uh, unexpectedly just became a widow now with three children that she was going to raise on her own. Uh, how complicated it was for her. How she had to work multiple jobs, uh, and it wasn't until I was 14 years old um, that she got her first job that actually gave her benefits. You know, I was I was 14 when she finally got a job that gave her stable hours.
0: Wasn't your father sent home from the hospital? Basically, told he, was. he didn't need care.
1: He was. He he was, he was, uh, he was misdiagnosed. Uh, He had something called acute epiglottitis, which is essentially a swelling of the epiglottis. Uh, And it's a, uh, it's, um, it's a virus where, um, where the epiglottis sits in, in all of our throats. And every time we talk or breathe or chew, the epiglottis raises up and it allows air to get inside of your windpipe. And essentially what acute epiglottitis is, is where the, a virus uh, attacks the epiglottis and makes it so swollen and makes it so heavy that it just sits there on top of your windpipe. And so essentially it was a misdiagnosis that, um, that uh, my father died because his body essentially suffocated itself.
0: And you, you think they he was sent away in part because he was a, a black man?
1: Absolutely, where, where, you know, where the questions that were asked of my mother when he was in the hospital, was, you know, uh, was asking about, you know, the assumption that he didn't have insurance, uh, you know, asking him, was he prone to exaggeration? Uh, and they sent him away with a, with a diagnosis of, of, get some rest. And if it gets worse, then, then, then come back to the hospital. Uh, it did get worse. And in fact, hours after he was released from the hospital, he died. Uh, as he, um, as I was, in fact, I remember watching him. I was at the base of the stairs, and uh, and I heard him coming down the stairs. And I went to the stairs to go to go greet him, and he collapsed, uh, and and fell down the stairs right in front of me. You know, I, I think about that moment now, where um, where we have so many people, who again, who are who are suffering. Uh, and, um, and we have so many heroic uh, nurses and doctors and people who are trying as best as they can to support those who are sick. And, uh, and, and, I, and I think about the case of, of people who aren't even able to go spend these last moments with their loved ones. I mean, we're watching amazing uh, heroism and, and kindness that's being shown throughout this country about the way we're dealing with and treating and serving people. But we're also watching these disparities show themselves in so many drastic ways. And I saw with my own family about how these singular shocks can knock a family down to the point that it then takes, it then takes this, you know, remarkable sense of influence and frankly, a lot of luck to be able to help people navigate their way out of this. And we cannot have a framework or a society where luck has to be a prerequisite in order for people to make it
0: we can't and and i keep thinking about how long lasting the impact of this is going to be on that front right when when the world is healthier again right and we all can't wait for that day what do you guys think the lasting impact of this increased disparity is is going to be and what do we need to to do about it?
1: I mean the, the, the tail on this is gonna be remarkably long. And um and one thing we always think about, you know, in, in, in our organization is it's it's not just gonna be about the emergency, it's gonna be about the aftermath because the aftermath of this is 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 going to be absolutely staggering the way that we are going to watch economies fundamentally change the way that even after we get in, in uh, you know an all clear and everyone is is permitted to go back to restaurants and permitted to go back uh, back to their work what exactly does that mean and look like particularly for so many people who barely had their head above water beforehand you know one of the big pushes we've had for example uh, you know we're talking about the importance of cash assistance in the work that we're doing uh, again weve Look at the fact that nearly half of New Yorkers couldn't afford an emergency expense of $400 before COVID. And even now we've, we've, we've passed a, you know, passed a bill, uh, on the federal side of north of two, you know, $2.2 2 trillion. Uh, you know, the, the reason that we're focusing a large bulk of our relief fund to emergency cash assistance programs, uh, that are going to be managed by our community partners who are quick to get cash into the hands of, of New Yorkers who need it most is also because of the fact that for many people, for many people who are in our population, they're not included in that.
0: Let's end on this, Wes. And as parents, ourselves, and and I just think so many people are thinking about kids right now, what have you seen in terms of the impact of this so far on children the most in need?
1: Oh, well, I mean, you know, it's, it's interesting because I think for, you know, I know, and you're a parent, I'm a parent, uh, you know, ha- having, having to adapt to, you know, what it means to have, uh, you know, remote learning and, 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 and homeschooling for your kids and, and the adaptation that's going to take on parents. Uh, but also I know that I'm blessed I, I know that uh, that, that you know that we have, uh, uh, you know, my, my wife is so all in and, and, and helping our kids and pulling everything together so that also I can continue, uh, you know, uh, leading this organization uh, and, 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 and leading this work and leading this effort. Uh, and I know that's a, that's a benefit that a lot of families don't have. I also know that for children who are in shelters right now, uh, and, and you think about it, you know, in, in New York City alone, alone, and this was before the crisis, about 23,000 children Every night, we're spending the night in shelters, uh, having to go to school, having to navigate. Despite the fact that they did not have a home, and for eighty percent of kids who are growing up in shelters, they don't have access to Wi-Fi or computers. So, how are they doing remote work? How are they thinking about ways to keep up with uh, with with their with their peers and their and, and their classmates? Uh, and so, as a as a large society, you know, it, it's it's both about how we how are we supporting uh, our, our children right now, our children. But also it's about how we're preparing for the aftermath because we know that uh, that, that this thing is going to last a while and specifically for those who are already in, in complicated situations.
0: Well, Wes, on that, my two-year-old just woke up from his nap and he is crying. <laughs> so I'm gonna have to leave it there. Go be mom, the most important of our jobs. And I, I just so appreciate uh, what you do. Wes, good luck to you and the entire team over there.
1: Bless you. Thank you so much for all you do. Thank
0: you, Wes. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Lauren Bush-Lauren will tell us about how she's supporting her employees through this crisis. And now, Lauren Bush-Lauren, the CEO of Feed Projects, tells us how her organization is supporting the UN World Food Program as they're trying to prepare for more countries to be hit hard by this virus. Thank you, Lauren. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, of course. Let's talk about what you do and who you serve. The reason, one of the big reasons I wanted to talk to you is all of the vulnerable people right now who are made more vulnerable because of this crisis. Um, 11 million food insecure children in the U.S. feed, serves people around the world. You work with No Kid Hungry to do that. How exacerbated is the crisis now because of this?
2: Yeah. I mean, day by day, I would say it's obviously quickly evolving. But the fact that, um, you know, for New York City specifically, but a lot across the country, so many schools are closed, especially public schools where, you know, many kids do rely on that free or subsidized school lunch, breakfast to, to, you know, eat, and their families rely on that. There are
0: 114,000 homeless kids just in the New York City public school system who all get their meals from the schools, just in one city.
2: Yeah, so that is a big, big deal. Um, I'm also on the board of the Food Bank for New York City, um, so been in close touch with them, and it, and our no, and No Kid Hungry is the organization as well that Feed is supported and is supporting. Um, to help give grants to food banks, to community, you know, community centers, um, information to families about where they can find those meals for for kids um, in lieu of not being able to maybe provide them themselves. I mean, again, I, with my family, we were lucky. We went to the grocery store. We were able to load up on enough food for a week or two, at least. Um, that's costly. That's not something that you know many families can do, and it. I definitely did it obviously feeling extremely grateful and lucky, but also with a, a honestly a sense of guilt and um, foreboding that this is not something an, a normal family can do.
0: What is going on with the supply in terms of? the numbers you're looking at globally for feed, helping the most vulnerable around the world, even who were the most vulnerable before this pandemic and how much more vulnerable it's made them and and those in need in the U.S.
2: Yeah. I mean, again, I think it's ever evolving. I talked to also our global partner, the World Food Program, um, who said very honestly, many they don't work as much in sort of Europe. They don't work in the U.S. You know, they're working in like the poorest of poor countries around the world. Um, And those haven't been the hardest hit yet. Obviously, there are cases and these are places where the health system isn't what we have, even though I'd say we're not prepared for this. Um, And then in terms of not spreading this further, making sure folks can get sort of healthy access. So they're doing things um, in America, you know, even in New York City, where it's like limiting Um, the amount of people who can go into a pantry at a time. So sort of spacing folks out, obviously wearing gloves and, you know, being as health conscious as possible in terms of hand washing. Um, but yeah, I would say, you know, grocery stores, these food distribution points, these are definitely going to be areas where folks are more vulnerable to, um, to catching this.
0: For you and your family right now, Lauren, you're leading feed. You've got employees; everyone's working from home. Everyone's working from home. We decided then we closed the store um, in Brooklyn. Right. So, so you, so those employees right now that work at the feed store there are are out of work. They're out of well. We've
2: tried because um, that was like too, too painful to do to them. Those most of the folks that work at the feed shop are. Um, younger many going to school and this is kind of a part-time job but some this is their full-time job um so similar to the salaried employees at feed wanted to do what we can so as of um now and kind of maybe for the next month god forbid it lasts that long it may last longer hopefully it's quicker who knows at this point we are paying um everyone's um basically the hours they would have worked we're, we're able to, to give them half of their normal weekly pay. Um, so at least they have, yeah, some income coming in and that will hopefully get them through this, this moment. Um, but in terms of, yeah, everyone on our payroll um, who's full-time, we're obviously continuing to, to pay at this time.
0: I guess just sort of in, in wrapping up, what, what is your message right now as, as a leader to people trying to lead small and medium-sized businesses like yours. Yours obviously is a nonprofit um, and especially ones that help those most in need. Like what has worked for you? What hasn't worked for you? I know it's day by day. It
2: is so day by day. I mean, I think on one hand, um, yeah, it's not staying calm, staying positive, helping where you can, being a good neighbor Um, definitely as a leader of a small business and team, we're doing the best we can to all work remotely, stay connected via Slack, via Asana. There's a lot of great kind of work tools out there that have been really effective for my team to stay connected, um, which has been great and really helpful. And then in terms of the need, I think it is, we've just been staying in close contact with our, the giving partners we work through locally, globally, and, um, Again, I think it's a day-by-day situation, even on their end, where they're sussing out the needs. But um, yeah, I mean, really, I think if, any, if there's any takeaway so far, it's that we're truly all in this together. And to me, I think it just puts um, you know movements like ours, like the hunger movement, like the environmental movement, certainly, just in a new context. Um, so I hope if anything comes out of this, it's a sense that Yeah, we all need to get together on on all these major issues.
0: Good luck, Lauren. I I know how hard it's got to be to try to help those most in need in in a situation like this. But thank you guys for for what everyone at Feed is doing. Thank you. Thank you, Poppy. Take care. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode of Boss Files, make sure to keep listening over the next several weeks as we talk to more and more business leaders about how they're coping with all of this uncertainty and the challenges presented by this pandemic. And as always, I want to know what you think. Leave us a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. You can always find me on social media at Poppy Harlow CNN. We'll be back soon with another episode of Boss Files. Thanks so much for being here.